Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Pitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. For our podcast day, we've trekked through the snow. We have. To be with you. It's been epic. Yeah, it's, it hasn't been that epic, actually. No, I should say, Carrie's very, very bored by the snow and completely unimpressed. Well, I'm from New England, baby. That's Although sweet. I'm told I shouldn't say that to British people because it's annoying to them. <laughs> so I'll keep mum. Um, but we do have a very special edition of our podcast today. We are talking about rediscovered literature, all the neglected gems that have been reintroduced to the world by passionate publishers, writers, and readers. From Alone in Berlin by Hans Falada, to Stoner by John Williams, to A Manual for Cleaning Women by Lucia Berlin. And we have two wonderful guests for you today. Octavia, do you want to introduce them? Absolutely. Our first guest is Nell Dunn, whose book Talking to Women was a collection of edited transcripts of conversations with nine of her female friends, which was first published in 1965. Out of print until now, it's about to be republished by the wonderful feminist publisher Silver Press in the UK in May. And one of Nell's conversations in the book is with a writer called Anne Quinn, who um, was shockingly quite little known during her lifetime but her work has been recently thrust back into public attention largely because indie publisher and other stories who we love have released a new collection of her stories and fragments called the unmapped country Um, and we're thrilled to have the book's editor jennifer hodgson here for our second segment so today we are talking to two wonderful writers who are present and living about another wonderful writer who cannot be here to speak for herself any longer Yes, um, and it's very not on brand for literary friction. Not at all on brand. Women talking to women. About stuff. Yeah. (laughs) We'll also be talking about other books that have recently been republished and re-celebrated, and as usual, giving our book recommendations. So please don't neglect us. That is so cheesy. We're waiting here to be rediscovered (laughs) on literary friction for the next hour. Thank you. (laughs) Our first guest today is the British writer Nell Dunn. Dunn rose to fame in the 1960s with books like Up the Junction and Poor Cow, which celebrated the lives of working class women. Poor Cow later became a film directed by Ken Loach. Dunn went on to write a number of lauded books and plays, and she still lives in London. Her first book was actually Talking to Women, a collection of edited typescripts of conversations with her friends that was published in 1965 and went out of print shortly after. This May, Silver Press will publish it again, and we're thrilled that Nell is on the line to talk about it with us. Nell, thank you so much for being here on Literary Friction with us. Could well, you... well not at all. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> um, could you please start by talking about how the project Talking to Women came about in the first place and what made you want to write it and record these conversations? Well, I think my favorite thing is chatting and chatting to friends and having proper conversations about feelings and quality of life and what's happening to them. So I think that's how it came about. And I thought, well, why not do a book? Because what I like best is chatting. And so I asked my friends if they'd do the book with me, have conversations, because I see it as conversations more than interviews. Um, and, uh, And they said, yes, they were interested. My friends were interested in doing it too. So we had to go in a very informal way with a little cheap tape recorder, and then I typed them out. So that's how the book was made. I think we were all about the same age, which was late 20s. And what were you hoping would come out of those conversations, and what were you surprised by that came out of those conversations? I was surprised by how generous people were um, with their lives. And um, I think... 
I think I didn't know what would come, but I just knew they were all people I liked chatting to. And so I wanted to have a go at recording them. And I think there were questions. You know, the pill had just happened and there were questions about having open marriages and questions about sleeping with other people's husbands and all that kind of thing was very much up in the air at the time. And do you think the result of these conversations was having some of those questions answered or did you feel any closer to knowing the answer to those questions after they were done? No, I don't don't think (laughs) I do feel any closer to knowing the answers. But I think it was also to do with having fun. Mm. Yeah, that and really I think, comes across. Yeah, and I think, you know, there was a, a more relaxed um, scene, in a way, about hanging out and, and, and having time to, to chat. And I think now careers are so kind of, um, in a way, you know, tightly organized. People seem to have very little time just to have a bottle of wine and chat. Yeah, I think that's true. And it, it really, the intimacy that you achieve in the conversations is the thing that transcends the time changing, you know, since we're revisiting these texts now. Um, But I wonder if you could talk about what it's like for you to read back um, on these conversations, you know, 30 years later. Um, It's it's probably even more than that. Yeah, Yeah. my maths is 2018. Oh, my God, my maths is terrible. (laughs) Probably 50 years. 50 years. um, it, It still seems to be about all the things I'm interested in. And I would be very happy to sit down with my friends now and do it again. Um, you know, I mean, of those friends, an awful lot are dead, which is really sad because mm. they were all young women and two of them committed suicide, which is a lot out of nine. Yeah, that um, is a lot. Um, but, I, but, but I know you're also republishing Anne Quinn and I think she's absolutely wonderful. And, and I would love to read a minute or two from, from my conversation with her. Oh, fantastic. Uh, can I do that? Yeah, we'd be delighted we'd for be that. Absolutely Thank you. thrilled. The hardest time that I found myself writing was when I had a full-time job. I wrote much more than I do now when I have every time in the world. Now, what do you find yourself doing other than writing? Anne, seeing people, and perhaps I do have that sense of freedom. Say, if someone invites me to go and stay in the country, which I love, then I go. I can do that, whereas when I had a job, Obviously, I couldn't, and I was very much tied to that, and I resented it. But at the same time, when I did have a full-time job, it got me so wound up to the fantastic, you know, how one can do. You're working up to the hilt, and you just go on and on, but you can't go on and on like that for years and years, because I had a sort of breakdown. I was working from nine until six and going back every evening, writing my first novel, very determined to write and finish a novel. I was about 20, 21, and going back every evening and sitting down and conscientiously writing page after page every evening from 7 until about midnight. And I did this for about 18 months, but that was the hardest time I worked. Now, are you happier now you haven't got a job? Yes. Much, much more relaxed and much more feeling that I can relax with people because I'm not edgy and feeling I'm wasting my time and ought to be writing. When one has a job, you feel at any spare time, one hand should be getting down to the work. Now, when did you see people? And, well, I didn't. I didn't know anyone when I first came up to London. I was very, very lonely. But at the same time, because I was working, 
It didn't necessarily make me very neurotic. And I just used to do the job and then go back to my room in Soho and get down behind the typewriter and off I'd go. Well, I think that's quite moving of her as a writer and, you know, trying to earn her living at the same time. Yes, and I love... One of the things I really loved about... um, your interview or your conversation rather with with Anne and one of the things that I think I really appreciated after reading her writing was just her sort of singular dedication to being a writer. Yes, um, I find that moving. I find it very moving. And very inspiring too, as you said about, you know, the way that careers are tightly wound these days to encounter somebody's voice that is so single-minded about their own creativity yes uh, and I think also you know it shows how difficult it is being a writer Mm. you know it sort of clarifies that in a way that how hard it is how hard you have to work yeah and and that self-belief I mean the book talking to women opens with a note from you about this idea of private joy and one search for private joy Um, and the, the piece you just read from Anne Quinn I think kind of explores that too doesn't it that this this private joy is worth pursuing but the sacrifice that one has to make is also very weighty I mean I wonder if if your career as a writer if you felt that kind of tension as well um well there seems to be sort of two things so I'll start with my career as a writer I think I did always find writing hard and um I think you know I probably wasn't nearly as good enough mother because I was always writing and always thinking about writing and I feel sad about that now. And that's, so that, that's one thing. And because it does take you over writing, as you probably both know. Mm. Um, and the thing about the private joy I thought was interesting. And I thought what, what Daniel Deronda was saying really was that there are things we must do that have nothing to do with our career or our families or our, you know, whatever, but that we do for ourselves in order to put us in touch with ourselves in a deep way. And I think... That, that, that that's what he meant, that, you know, you should go into the house alone and open the piano and play and sing just for yourself um, to put you in touch with yourself. Does that make any sense? Yeah, very much so. And and it's something that I think gets lost in contemporary culture. Mm. Yes, it gets lost because people are so busy trying to make enough money to live a reasonable life. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the thing about these conversations in this in this text. The intimacy is, I found the intimacy of them very moving because, again, intimacy and private joy seem connected too, even if that private joy is just an intimacy with oneself. It seems to operate in the same kind of frequency. Um, I don't know, that's not a question, it's a comment, but I I felt it very deeply reading the text. Yes, no, I agree with you. I think it is connected. The two are connected. And the whole thing is sort of living an authentic life and... But, you know, not trying to be entertaining, but to try and be kind of true. I've slightly gone off tack now, but I think it is interesting. And the other thing is much more an expectation now to be successful. And I think in the 60s, you did what interested you. I'm not, I mean, that's such a generalization, but it seemed to be fine to do what interested you rather than be successful. It's interesting to hear you say that because you know, neither of us were alive in the 60s. And the, and the general assumption is that things have got better for women since that time. Oh, yeah, I've forgotten um, that. <laughs> but, you know, in the, the, the way to hear you speak, there, there seems to have been a kind of maybe a freedom lost, especially 
amongst people who were more autistic and, and were more willing to forego the sort of traditional route of having a family and being a good mother and being a good wife as well. I wonder if you think that's true. I think everything has got more expensive and more rushed, and it's much harder to live this, a sort of simple bohemian life, which it used to be in the 60s. You know, you know, flat somewhere to live was very cheap, and that, that was the start of it. And, um, and it's people seem to have more leisure because they weren't rushing to have to make money to pay the rent kind of thing. So I think that's now, if things have got better for women... Now, when I was young, in, say in the late 50s, it was, people absolutely believed, women included, that men were more important. I mean, it just seems astonishing now. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> they really did think... That, that, well, men thought they were more important. I don't think we, I don't, we always did, but men certainly thought they were more important and that we were there to, to make them happy. You know, that was our main thing. We had to make them happy. And we were very bad people, if we, bad women, if we didn't attempt to make them happy. I think there was that going on. However, you, people often found a man who would keep them so they could do their writing and be kept. Nowadays, I don't think that's true. I think women are expected to keep themselves if they want to be a writer. That's my perception. I may have got it completely wrong. No, I don't think that's wrong. I don't know where I would look for a band to keep me. <laughs> I think there are websites for that, babe. Um, I, I want to talk to you a little bit more about Anne Quinn, who um, we're yes. focusing on, especially later in this show. Um, I thought one of the really interesting things that you spoke to her about in your conversation was the lack of uh, communication in English culture and yes. how difficult that made things for people. And I wonder if you think that's changed. Um, yes, I think I, I think among people who want it, who are interested in communication, it's, it, I, I'm not quite sure. I'm just trying to think. I'm just trying to think. I don't know. If it, I think it's an individual thing, isn't it? I think there are people like me who have always been really interested in hearing how other people feel and think and, and other people who haven't um you'll have to ask me again because i'm slightly lost now. no that's fine do you know i'm i might ask you a different question which is i would love for you to just talk about Anne and your friendship with her and what your impression of her was as you knew her um well i met her because she was a friend of the poet christopher logue um, who thought she was a wonderful writer. And having read some bits from, from the new reissue of her book, um, I'm terribly impressed by it. I mean, I was terribly impressed by Berg. I absolutely loved Berg because I loved the kind of whole seedy 50s feel of it. Yeah, and Berg was but, her first novel. Yes, the one she she wrote, you know, while she was working in the office and things. And um, the... Uh, the, 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 but the, for instance, the story about going away for the weekend to the seaside with the older man, just incredible. I think it's so good. Yeah, goosebumps. And um, she was a very bold writer, you know, prepared to look at all kinds of things. And I didn't know her terribly well. I mean, she was a friend of Christopher's and I would see her with him. And she was had an absolute, you know, far of energy. I, and I say energy and braveness. You know, she came to London, no money, got a room somewhere, got a job, 
and wrote a book. You know, she nobody nobody much helped her. That's probably not true. I think she probably did have people who helped her. But she was a brave woman and a good writer. And I have every admiration for her. And we did hang out a bit, me and her and Christopher, and talk about books and poetry. I really liked her a lot. That comes across in your conversation with her, that you two really like each other and respect each other as well. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. No, well, I think I do think it's marvellous that she's been republished. I'm very pleased about that. Great. Well, Nell Dunn, it's been a pleasure to have you on Literary Friction. Um, The book that is being republished is called Talking to Women, and um, it is coming out with Silver Press in May 2018, um, and our listeners can pre-order from their website right now. Um, so, So thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Our second guest today on our Rediscovery show is Jennifer Hodgson, a writer and critic from Hull. Jennifer writes about literature and culture for a variety of publications, including The Guardian and The White Review. She's here today to talk about the late British writer Anne Quinn. Hodgson is currently writing the first critical study of Quinn's work, and she is the editor of a new collection of stories and fragments by Quinn called The Unmapped Country, published by And Other Stories in January 2018. Jennifer, thank you so much for being here with us on Literary Friction. And we've asked you to start with a reading from Anne Quinn's collection. So could you set it up for us, please? Uh, I'm going to read from um, A Double Room, which is one of the earliest stories in the collection. It's kind of a, a, it's a story of a failed love affair and erectile dysfunction, uh, in a way. Um, Okay. They had arranged to meet at 11 a.m. She arrived at 10.30 I know I must be there early or I won't go at all. Why am I going? Am I in love? No, one doesn't question. In love with the situation. Hope of love. Out of boredom. A few days by the sea. A hotel. Room overlooking sand. Gulls. Beach. Breakfast in bed. Meals served by gracious smiling waiters. But the land there is flat. Dreary. Endless. Though the sea... The sea, the whole front to myself. But what if it rains all the time? It drizzled now as she looked out of the station. Cabs swished by. People rushed through barriers. Escape, escape with my lover. But he isn't even that. In her small room, on her single bed, they had gone so far, fully clothed. No, we'll wait, it wouldn't be fair. I have to leave you soon. Now the weekend he would prove to be. She clutched her bag glanced at the clock, and there he was, his hat cuckoo perched on an unfinished nest, dressed in a new suit, Mac just cleaned over his arm. Hello, love. If people stopped to look, they would think they were father and daughter on the way to an aunt's funeral. They don't look, but think, dirty old man, as he takes my arm, my bag. Great. I loved that story so much. Um, that was, I think, the point in the anthology that made me think, okay, this writer is something incredibly special. And, and it's early on in the anthology. So I wanted to start by just asking you what drew you to Anne Quinn's work and, and what made you want to be part of this collection? Um, <clears throat> well, I 
Anquin was on my syllabus at university. It's kind of a weird one. Berg was on the syllabus and it just seemed like the strangest and most singular book. <laughs> it seemed really strange. And um, and I became more interested in, in kind of Anne Quinn's work and her life and I began researching it a bit. And then I started coming across stories. Um, I started coming across mention of the stories and then I, it became... It became like a bit of a wild goose chase that I couldn't really resist. I came across one story and then there was mention of another one and like the whole thing became very seductive. And of course, it's a bit of a bit of a quest, these kind of lost stories that haven't been published for 50 years or that haven't ever been published before and no one's ever read. Um, and I've always been convinced that Berg was Berg is kind of a forgotten masterpiece. And the idea that there, were, there was this other work by a writer whose body of work um, that was in publication was so small, just the four novels during her short writing career. The idea of there being more things that people hadn't seen was really irresistible for me. It sounds like a really fun experience of like deep archival. Oh, it was. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, the, the idea of being an archival researcher and like putting on the white gloves and like going through the dusty boxes, it's kind of... It's kind of not generally my vibe, but with this, it was it was just so fascinating. And it, as I say, it was such a wild goose chase because Quinn doesn't have, you know, a university archive in the States, you know, loads of boxes of her work just sitting there to be opened. Um, since she died, I mean, she lived all over the place. She had all kinds of friends from all kinds of different areas of her life. So it was really a matter of kind of phoning up old mates and ex-boyfriends and being like, do you remember this this woman that you knew back in the 60s? And they were like... Oh yeah, Anne, <laughs> and um, asking them to like look in their back bedrooms and drag out these um, these old manuscript sheets and scan them. I mean, the, I think the the strangest place I got um, stories from was a Carmelite friary in East Finchley, because um, she had a confidant called Father um, Brocard Sewell, and I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that. Uh, wrong and he died um a few years back and he was kind of a he was a he was a Carmelite friar but he was also a, a kind of confidant for lots of people kind of involved in the countercultural demi-monde in the 60s and he'd kept all of her stories He's, he was a huge supporter um of hers and uh yeah so I um the the archivist of this friary and um, duly scanned and sent through these stories which was amazing wow yeah, yeah. <laughs> very unexpected yeah I mean, how do you I wonder how she how Anne Quinn would feel about that, you know, that being like the the place where her work ended up, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, I, she always she always wanted the short stories to be published. Um, when you read her letters to her publisher, Marion Boyars, who was in partnership with John Calder in the in the 60s, she was always really, really keen for them, them to be published. And she she always spoke about waiting for a nice high offer from some American university to collect her papers. And it never came. So these things kind of remain scattered. And I think she'd have been kind of amused by the fact that they ended up in such bizarre places, I think. Yeah. Let's go back and just talk a bit about her biography. Mm -hmm. So she was born in Brighton in yeah. 1936, and she had quite an unconventional life. She came from a working class background, um, and she talks a little bit about her childhood and things in the sort of what I think what you call memoir writing piece yeah. called Leaving School. But I love the sense that she uh, she just got out of school and took menial jobs because mm -hmm. all she wanted to do was write. Mm. Yeah, I mean, she always said when she got into a position where she... I'm actually, this is in the um, interview she did with Nell Dunn. When she um, 
kind of got the got the advances on her novels and didn't have to work anymore, didn't have to work full time anymore. She found it much more difficult to write. I think she found it easier when she was she was doing the secretarial work for various publishers. She was also a secretary for the head of painting at the Royal College of Art. And she would she would she had this, you know, incredible drive where she would she would leave work, she would go back to her bedsit in Soho and she would just sit there all night on a typewriter. In fact she got um she got evicted from one bedsit, I think the one that she lived in in Soho because um, she kept people up all night with the noise of the typewriter <laughs> to like to in the morning. And um, yeah, she just, she just, she was, she kind of single-mindedly pursued this thing. She had this drive. Yeah. And you, you talk about discovering her novel, Berg, mm. which was her first big success. So can yeah. you talk a little bit about that novel and what you think w- made it the thing that thrust her into the scene? Yeah. I mean, she, she wrote two novels uh, before Berg, but um she burnt them. <laughs> yeah, she burnt the manuscripts. And um, yeah, Berg is Berg is this really singular thing. I mean, in in one sense, in one sense, it's kind of a a, a, a British noir novel. It's this kind of failed murder story set in a seaside town with you know part of a tradition of kind of weird seaside violence in English writing, I guess. Um, but it's also got a touch of that. Well, it's it's written in the sixties, but it. The, the atmosphere of the book feels more like the 40s or something like everything's kind of like claggy and mildewy and sort of time lagged and you've got this sort of this sort of would-be anti-hero this kind of weird self-fashioning man who's a kind of hair tonic salesman and and desperately wants to kind of assert his will over his own life and keeps being foiled at every turn and like you know he he thinks he's kind of this existential anti-hero and what he doesn't realize that he's caught up in the oldest plot of all which of course is the Oedipal narrative you know he wants to kill his father and he never quite manages it so it's sort of it's it's extremely dark but it's also really really farcical it's it's a it's a you know it's a ridiculous a kind of a, a absurd fiction um but I think it's I think it's incredible. I think it's a real it's a real forgotten masterpiece. And I hope off the back of this of uh, what I'm calling Quinn Mania, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I hope it leads people also to the rest of her novels as well because th- there are four and they're all they're all completely different um, and they're marvelous, you know. And she she ended up in hanging out with the Beats in the States, didn't she? Yeah, she ended up kind of ensconced in, I guess, the, the kind of post-beat scene, the American language poets and the, the, the kind of Black Mountain poets. She went to the Berkeley Poetry Congress as well. Um, and she really thought of herself as a poet. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting to me that this English novelist found a kind of home in exile amongst American poetry. You know, it's really strange. There's not many writers who did that, still less um, female working class experimental writers from Britain, um, but yeah, she 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 was she thought of herself and she was spoken of in the states as a poet. Yeah, yeah, I think that comes through in her writing because it's 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 not straight prose, mm. or at least the, I haven't read Berg, but mm. in the fragments collected mm. in the unmapped country, it's it, it is de- she has a deeply poetic perspective, doesn't she? A kind of fragmented, distilled, energetic mm. pieces, um, and you say you say in your introduction to the texts um, that she kind of. Uh, parlayed the promise and warm reception of Berg into an extraordinary freewheeling existence living, loving and writing her own picaresque Mm. which I love I love the idea of her as some kind of like female picaresque figure just barreling through the world Mm. Um, but I wonder like can you sort of talk a bit more about that about what that meant about what what that life looked like 
Um, what that life looked like, as far as I can see, is her sending letters to Marion Boyars, her publisher, going, can I have another advance, please? <laughs> 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 or what about that British, um, that Arts Council grant? Can I have one of those again, please? And she would, you know, she would, she would come back to, to Britain. She would um, claim another advance. And then she would go off. Um, and she spent she spent a lot of time in um, New Mexico amongst the poets and the kind of alternative living scene there. But she also lived in San Francisco. She spent some time in New York. She spent some time in Greece. She um, also went to the Bahamas and uh, Sweden. Um, yeah, she that that was her life, which is you know, if, uh, for for a, a woman from her background and a woman from that time to manage that. It's amazing. And, you know, it seems like a fantastic way to spend a publisher's advance, I think. Yeah, she sounds like my absolute hero. <laughs> um, but she did die when she was very young. She mm -hmm. was 37, um, swimming. She was swimming near Brighton's Palace Pier in 1973. And mm. you don't say it. So I, so, some people say that it's a suicide, although it sounds like maybe it's unclear. Um You know, I haven't read the coroner's report. It's not my, it's not my place to say. I think for me, um, when we... Um, so often when we think about um, women writers and especially working class women writers and especially working class women writers who've suffered um, problems with mental illness, um, we think they're so often read backwards in terms of in terms of their mental illness or in terms of their their deaths. And I'm really keen to avoid that with Anne Quinn because um, to read her work through through um, what happened to her, through the kind of distress that she suffered towards the end of her life, I think really downplays the her her the kind of craft and the graft that went into her work I think it happens so often I don't want you know I don't want um what happens to Sylvia Plath to happen to Anne Quinn I think I think it, it really does her work a grave disservice and it also does her life a grave disservice because she did she suffer, suffered from these um increasingly frequent episodes of mental illness but she also had a really good life you yeah. know as well well, and you, you talk about the fact that, you, you know, she would be at home among Kathy Acker and Chris Krause and Definitely. those kind of voices today, which I loved um, framing in that way. I mean, mm. I love both of those writers very much and I completely agree with you. I think you're totally right. Um, but this also seems to connect to Nell Dunn's book as well with these 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 women's voices that are unflinchingly honest mm. in some way. Yeah, and I think, um, I think that's why Quinn's kind of having her moment now you know when I first became interested in Anne Quinn the idea that I could um I could edit and publish a book of her lost short stories was ridiculous to me you know I couldn't find another human being to speak about Anne Quinn to there were about four of us you know um and so I think it's really I think there's a reason why Quinn's having her moment now and it's because you know when you when you read the interview with her um with Nell Dunn in talking to women so many of so it feels ridiculous that fifty years later those concerns should still be so so ripe and so present, but they re, they really are, you know. And I think, um, I, you know, I, we we shouldn't have to make a claim for her contemporary significance. She's just a wonderful writer, but equally. Um, th th so many of her kind of um, concerns are shared amongst contemporary women writers, people like Claire Louise Bennett and Ema McBride and Deborah Levy, who's a huge supporter of her work. You know, I, I find it, I find it, um, I, I, I find myself reading um, some of the most interesting women writers from the present day and thinking they must have read Quinn. They must have read, read Quinn. There's so, something so Quinn-like about them. And often they haven't, but they're kind of drawing on the same traditions that, you know, that there's something, there's something in the water. And so I think that's why she's having her moment now. 
Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about her style, which mm. is so transfixing. And mm. one of the things that I loved about it um, is is a point you make is her attraction to the sort of like chintzier, dirty, yeah, dirtier side of life. Yeah. Um, this vision of the fading seaside and yeah. the sort of grisly undertone and and the sort of English trinkets yeah. that are propagate throughout all of her stories. Yeah, I mean, for all you get in her stories this kind of um you get the picaresque quinn which is the which is kind of attracted to these hot and brutal and exotic places you also get this kind of this kind of compulsion to examine the absolute crappy detail of everyday life you know i um the, the kind of like greasy macintoshes and the kind of hair oil stains on antimacassars and like the skin on the top of a pan of milk you know um, and and i think there's always a tension between those two things in quinn she's she's utterly compelled and disgusted by the kind of detail of everyday life you know she's she's completely dissatisfied with the quotidian that's laid out for her uh, and she's desperate to escape but she's always drawn back to it she's always kind of she's always kind of an, 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 a kind of exile who doesn't want to go back to where she's came but is kind of always drawn back yeah yeah and and a real restless female voice as well I mean, mm-hmm. in so many of these stories there are women sort of yearning to yeah break free of whatever situation they're in yeah I mean another reason why I think she's she would um sit so well alongside someone like Chris Krause or like Kathy Acker or any of the the contemporary women writers I've mentioned is because all of these stories are about the kind of irrepressibility of female desire and female desire that's limited you know and the the story of Double Room that I that we kicked off with is about is about a kind of tentacular kind of ever expanding female desire that's come that's always constrained but but wants to be free-flowing you know yeah I think that's absolutely right but I it also in this collection you can almost read that into the veracity with which she she manages to play with lots of different styles and mm. yet remain very singular in her voice mm. which is really interesting and, mm. and quite unusual I think mm. um and you know, it was it was actually Carrie who pointed out that, that you know there's a, a moment in um, BB's manifesto which is very very stylized mm. where she sounds almost like kind of like a crass Holden Caulfield. Yeah. Um, and you know, um, and then there's Nude in Seascape, which made me think of Brighton Rock. And you mm. know, I mean, I, I don't like the tendency to kind of um, always place writers in the context of other similar things, mm. but at the same time, that restlessness seems to kind of race through all of the experiences in in the fragments. Um, and then we land with The Unmapped Country, which is mm. the unfinished novel, mm. right? Which I wonder if you could talk about, because I found that incredibly powerful. Um, and, you know, bearing in mind what we've said about not wanting to frame her within this context of mental illness, mm. it, is an, it is a very visceral, mm. very real feeling description of being in, um, in a mental health institution, basically. Um, mm, I mean, it's an absolute indictment of mainstream mental health care. Um, absolutely, I think it's really it's a really interesting piece because it's it's um, it's the more broadly realist of 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 all of the works in the collection. Um, but it's also about that. I mean, it's a, it's a it's the piece is really about. Um, I mean, she talks about kind of losing her language, about about this this kind of attunement that she used to have with the external world and an ability to to kind of imagine imaginatively uh, sort of transform her, her her experience into the into language. And and it's the, the protagonist Sandra um, kind of has has lost that ability. She talks about um, the fact that she used to understand the language of birds but can't any longer. So yeah, it's 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 the it's the, the 
the most broadly realist one of all the, the pieces here. But it's kind of about that. It's about no longer having that language, the, the language that you describe where, which, where um, she, you know, she chooses the, the form kind of comes from the content. She, she yeah, the, the range of these stories is incredible. Um, and so in, it, I guess in a sense that the story that the map country is is it has this kind of melancholy in a way and, and it, it's a kind of fitting it's a kind of fitting end if if although it's it's very sad that that she can't find she can't the, the protagonist and queen herself can't find that language anymore yeah and and also many of the characters within it as well mm. because it has that cacophony of voices of yeah people desperately trying to express themselves and not being understood by the institution yeah yeah i mean people trying to express themselves and not being understood like the, that's a kind of fundamental mental obsession of Quinn's, our kind of inability to communicate and to connect as human beings and and um yeah the different ways in which we're we're all kind of misconnections that runs through all of her work yeah yeah and she said in her interview with Nell Dunn that mm. she thought a fundamental problem of the English was their inability to communicate <laughs> yeah yeah I mean yeah all of her novels are kind of are kind of about that and also about finding new ways, you know, her, her obsession with kind of three-way relationships, you know, that um, that in, in kind of profiles that appeared of her at the time, it was kind of thought of in, in this kind of scandalous, lascivious ways. But I think for her, it was a kind of social experiment in finding new means of human connectedness. Mm. Yeah. And I was, I loved that this came out with End Other Stories, which mm. is a small publisher. Yeah. Um, we're, we're talking to, of course, Nell, we talked to Nell Dunn, who yeah. was published by Silver Press. And mm -hmm. it seems like there are all these really interesting, smaller publishers that can release work like this that's a little more daring. Mm. Um, so I wonder if, if you get that sense as well. Totally. I think it's dead exciting. I mean, you know, thinking about thinking about why this moment for Quinn. I think there's definitely something about, um, you know, t 10 years ago, the idea of this getting published anywhere would have been more difficult. But now... Um, I think the the kind of upsurge in more innovative experimental forms is really underpinned by by smaller publishers emerging, which itself is underpinned, I think, by a kind of democratization that's happened as a result of kind of the internet. I mean, it's funny, the subject of Twitter has come up a lot in the conversations that I'm having about Anne Quinn and Twitter somehow we <laughs> As a, as a kind of like as a kind of subsidiary reason behind Quinn mania Twitter and the idea that Quinn fans can find one another and yeah it's a, it's a, it's a weird thing but <laughs> but it's amazing it's, it's how people reinforce their taste isn't it as well like especially if someone's on the margin somehow and then it, you can have a hashtag and blah 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 blah, yeah. blah. but it's it is funny to think of you having done this very disparate archival kind mm. of pulling together of things and then now suddenly it's on Twitter and it's like it's a different kind of archival research for the fans almost you know yeah I mean I, yeah I find it amazing yeah every t every time you know I see a, p a picture on Instagram of someone you know someone's taken a a, a picture of, the, of the, the cover of the book I'm like wow if you'd have told me 10 years ago that someone would be posting what is it called if it's a selfie but it's of a book I'm sure there's a name for it um but someone would be posting a picture on Instagram of a of a bookstagram of an, or something a book bookstagram yeah <laughs> someone would be posting a bookstagram of a collection of the lost short stories of Anne Quinn I wouldn't have believed it yeah. it's amazing I'm, yeah. I'm dead chuffed yeah you know? <laughs> and so um now that we're all Quinn maniacs, yeah. uh, where should we go if we want more of her? Um, she's got four other novels. If you if if you like the collection, she's got four novels. Which um, I mean, we've been talking about how varied she is and and how varied the style the styles of the stories in the collection are. Um, 
each of the four novels is entirely different. You know, we've talked a bit about Berg already and this kind of sense of like a sort of British noir, seaside, farce, you know. Uh, but then she's she has um, uh, three... Um, passages and triptychs she ends up with triptychs which is her final novel that's a kind of mad barosian road novel you know it's it's set in a kind of phantasmic vision of america it's a kind of road novel um and the ones in be- the, run- the ones in between they kind of um they borrow a lot from the french nouveau roman they're, yeah they're they're all very different so go to the novels next Sounds fantastic. I can't wait. Which publisher can we put pressure on <laughs> to re Good question. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone. Um, um, just leave it with me. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Hodgson, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today to talk about Anne Quinn. Um, and the, the collection is called The Unmarked Country and it's out now with mm-hmm. and other stories. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here with Octavia Bright, and we are in to the bit of the show where we talk about the wider theme of our show. So um, the wider theme of our show today is rediscovered books, and I think there's a lot to talk about here, but I think we should probably start, Octavia, by defining what we mean by rediscovered books. So what I'm thinking here is books that come back to public attention, either through republishing or because of some sort of increased attention from readers so usually things that have been published before are we in agreement there we are in agreement yes yes we are <laughs> good okay i will move on then um and i also have to say i was really excited to do this show because as someone who works in publishing i really love the concept of a book that has already been published being sort of brought back to life. We're so focused on the front list and what's new in publishing, but there are so many good books. I mean, there are so many books published now that don't get attention, but there have been so many good books that for whatever reason just didn't catch the public attention or become classics or whatever. And the idea that we can reinvigorate those books and give them a new life is really exciting. Yeah, it's really, really cool. I mean, the thing I find interesting is that we have different perspectives on this because you're within the industry and I'm not. For me, I'm quite an atemporal, ahistorical reader. I tend to I don't tend to pay a huge amount of attention to when a book, you know, was published or, or necessarily was even written when I read it. I'm quite chaotic like that. So it was very interesting actually when I was prepping for this to really think about those things. And it made me realise that I read in this kind of atemporal way. Um but I would counter that saying you think you're reading in an atemporal way, but often the things that you're coming across, I, this is like the speech from The Devil Wears Prada about Cerulean Blue. Hit me with it. <laughs> well, I me, just baby. feel like publishers have more of an influence over what you're reading than you maybe think. I think that's absolutely true. Yeah. And that's kind of what I realized when I was looking at all of oh, this. Did I take I, away your point? You did. Okay, so I'm so what sorry. I was going to make a point was basically I thought that I was some kind of fucking maverick and actually it turns out I'm just as manipulated as everybody else. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, but what the point you made about you know, books being rediscovered and brought to bear in, a, in, a, in the current climate. One of the things I think is cool about that is all of the tools that the publishing industry, but also that readers have at their fingertips now, such as social media and, you know, transglobal networks and the onus on translation being so much greater is that, you know, these books not only get a second lease of life in, in, in the immediate, but then the knock-on effect, the ripple effect in some ways can seem to go on even further and be even wider and bigger and broader, which is which is fabulous. 
Yeah, I, I completely agree. I love arm waving when I say yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for defining that for our listeners. Um, no, and I should say it's not just publishers. It's also readers. And as you say, um, we have more ways than ever to be connected before and to champion things. Um, and I want to talk about Stoner a little later, which I think is a really interesting example of, of French readers getting excited about a book and then publishers picking up on it, which it was a totally... Um, sort of un, unexpected phenomenon. Um, and that's very exciting as well. So I was also thinking about this in, in, in the sense that I think books do speak to us in different ways at different times. And one of the exciting things about books being rediscovered and republished is, is that they do mean different things. We, we were just speaking to Nell Dunn, and I think her speaking quite transgressively in many ways to, to women in the 60s is in our moment of Me Too and a sort of feminist reckoning, a really interesting document um, in a very different way it would have been at the time. Um, and I think the, one of the reasons why Anne Quinn's book has been received so excitedly is because it, it feels really subversive. She feels like a feminist voice who was maybe too ahead of her time and a bit quashed at the time. And, and now we're seeing her for her true brilliance. Yeah, and I think both of those women writers, both Nell Dunn and Anne Quinn, in, in these two books that we're discussing, they're, they're doing the same thing, which is getting to some sense of authenticity and integrity. And the thing about that is that it's timeless. So yes, you're absolutely right that the, con the context being different shines a new light on these works. But at the same time, the very core of them is a totally timeless thing. Like people exploring intimacy with one another is always interesting when it's honest because integrity is always resonant. Um, and with Anne Quinn, you know, her singular kind of search for artistic integrity is the thing that I find really sings from that text. Um, but, you know, thinking about the way that when a text is rediscovered and republished, a writer also gets rediscovered and kind of reimagined um, in their absence is a really interesting idea as well. You get, it's almost like having a seance. You conjure the, the spirit of these people. And it made me realize, massive um, admission here, but I had no idea that Kafka only kind of became Kafka after he died in the public consciousness. I really, really didn't realize that to my absolute shame. Um, and I was thinking about it a lot when I was, when I was preparing. I, I, the idea that, you know, Kafka-esque is a descriptor, a descriptor that is so current in the English language, in the English, English language speaking world. And especially right now in the age of Trump and Brexit and all this insane stuff that's happening. You hear people trotting it out constantly. And I was just thinking, God, I wonder what he would think about it and I wish we could have a direct line and just be like hey man yeah. <laughs> you know first of all you were right and second of all holy shit <laughs> very eloquent tune into the next literary friction the Kafka seance edition Listen, I have a friend in Margate who does seances <laughs> so like I'm up for it if you are no I think you're right though and uh I had a, a similar realization when preparing for the segment which is there are so many writers who only became famous posthumously uh you know, the, the list goes on and on, but, you know, Thoreau, Zora Neale Hurston, Emily Dickinson, Herman Melville, Sylvia Plath, there are too many people to list. And I think it shows that, um, you know, again, that writers speak to us in different ways at different times. Um, and also, I do think there's, there is a sort of sick pleasure in discovering something after somebody's dead, and we can do with them what we want when the when the person starts to fade and uh the author 
begins to rise to prominence along with their text. Um, yeah. you, you know, Jane Austen famously wasn't uh, really popular in, until the early 1900s. Shakespeare really came into fashion with the romantics. Um, you know, when when we start to be able to twist an author to our needs it's, is when we can really start to celebrate them. That's right. And people are fascinated and very much buy into the romantic myth of the author as some kind of savant or some kind of tragic figure often as well. You know, like one of the things Nell said about not all the women that she spoke to in her book were, were authors, but there's a high um, a high thread of suicide that runs through a lot of authors who are discovered posthumously or who are celebrated posthumously. And I think that that I think that that is uh, it speaks to something quite prurient in our culture, mm-hmm. unfortunately. But it doesn't mean that their work shouldn't be celebrated. But do you see what I mean? There's a tension there because I do think that there is a sense that like the tragedy of somebody's ending reinvigorates their work for certain people yeah. or it creates a buzz. It's it's a kind of a vile thing. But you always have this. The cross current between commerce and art is always ugly and it's always complicated. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think you're right that we're fascinated by a sad story, especially when it comes to writers, because there are all of these cultural tropes about writers as being people who are depressed and commit suicide. And, and this idea that I think there's a real there. It's easy to pat yourself on the back for rediscovering somebody's work who was very sad and who lived a, a sad life mm. um, in addition to sort of being fascinated by their untimely demise. Mm. Um and, you know, there is that, that as you say, the, the co- commercial element, I work in publishing, but there is something a bit uh, distressing about this idea of people finding lost classics. Um, and of course, you have to do that to sell it, but it feels a little disingenuous. Yeah, I agree. It sucks a little bit. Yeah, but also it's great. Um, and, and one of the things... That, <laughs> um, wow, we're we're, we are really... Going deep into this today. <laughs> Using all that academic language. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> oh my God, Carrie um, swore. Wow. I know. Um, but Rediscovery does give us a chance to, you know, let the voices of people of color, of women, of, of people who had a much harder time getting published. Um, and, you know, I think they're some of the greatest writers that that we know, especially from underrepresented or disadvantaged groups, come because people later um, in history, when maybe we're a little more open to these kinds of voices, can look back into the past and think, okay, this person wasn't as lauded as they um which deserve to be well that's it that's exactly the whole process of the need that we have to decolonize our learning and decolonize our literature and look back at our canons and realize that they are the products of a violent and excluding society um so yeah the the, the it's an archaeology of humanity essentially to reach these to rediscover these voices that were completely and utterly obliterated by you know what i'm about to say <laughs> dominant heteronormative yeah. patriarchal white voices that is the academic octavia that i love <laughs> <laughs> no i completely agree and um and also that of course the idea of a canon or classics that's all bosh and we've talked about that a lot on this show that it's it's a completely fabricated idea and it's useful to some extent maybe just to understand the dominant culture that exists in our world but you know classics and canons are there to be um burst apart yeah fucked with yeah. they 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 act in the service of nation building and they act in the service of 
um, essentially uh, very restrictive concepts of, of what education means and what knowledge means and what understanding means. And they are not to be trusted. Really, they are not. And everyone should go and be their own literary archaeologist and enjoy finding and connecting with voices that go against the grain of the dominant culture. That's my that's my rallying call. Yeah. I also like popular culture. Okay, well, that's a whole... <laughs> I don't know what to yeah, say to I, that. I know, no, I agree, I guess. No, I'm teasing, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. Um, Okay, so let's, you. <laughs> let's talk about our favorite rediscoveries. Do you want to start? Yes, I'd love to. Um, I'm going to continue with the theme of small presses bringing underappreciated or underrepresented voices back into the limelight. Um, and sneakily, I'm going to recommend two. I'm just the first one very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to give a shout out to um, Silver Press's publication of Leonora Carrington's short stories called The Debutant and Other Stories, which I've mentioned on the show before, but it's so brilliant. And Carrington's having a bit of a moment again right now, which is a very exciting thing because she's a fabulous writer and a fabulous artist. You can even see three of her masks at the Turner Contemporary Gallery in Margate right now, um, which is part of their Wasteland exhibition, and they're fabulous. But um, the main thing I'm going to recommend is a writer called Alejandra Pizarnik, who was an Argentine poet and writer of experimental fiction. Um, and she was publishing work from young, from the age of 19, until she very tragically ended her life in the early 70s at, at only 36. Um, and she was kind of a surrealist. She hung out with Octavio Paz and Julio Cortázar. Um, she spent time in Paris. And her work was published mostly in Spanish and French. But in 2015, her writing was given a new lease of life, new lease of life, excuse me, by Ugly Duckling Press and another press called New Directions, who published English language English language translations of it um, in various different collections, all translated by a poet called Yvette Siegert, who is a writer in her own um, right of her own standing. But it meant that there's been this really cool resurgence of Pizanik's work and she's been able to reach a completely new audience. Um, and it's been able to happen through translation. So this kind of rediscovery is happening posthumously, but it's also happening linguistically. Um, the work is very exciting. It actually speaks quite nicely to Carrington as well. So yeah, go, go, go. Female surrealist voices. Yeah. I love that. You I'm sounded gonna... so sarcastic just then. No, yeah. no, I was I was <laughs> I was very um, excited. You were with like, me. <laughs> I wasn't being sarcastic at all. No, okay. those um I've come across the Carrington. I haven't come across um the other name I won't even try to say Pizarnik. Yeah. Uh, well, I Alejandro Pizarnik. I don't know how yeah. you pronounce actually the second the, uh, with the Argentine. Um, but they both I think you really, really dig her work. Yeah. Yeah. She um, was radical. That's cool. Well, I am going to give a very unradical suggestion just to balance yours out, not because I'm not radical, of course. Um so and and also uh I think a lot of people listening will probably have already read this book. So, you know, do with it what you will. But uh, it's been, it has been really interesting to watch in recent years in publishing the success of books like Sweet Francaise um, by Irene Nemovrovsky. Nice. I, no. I don't <laughs> Not know. nice. I know. I think you did it. Um, Sweet Francaise, um, uh Alone in Berlin by Hans Villada, um, a, a number of other books that have that publishers have very, very successfully brought back to public attention. And one of these, and probably the most well-known of these, is a book called Stoner by John Williams. Um, everyone was reading it in 2013. So again, um, it's not the most revelatory recommendation of a rediscovery. Uh, but it was a big deal. Yeah. Um, but it, it was a really, really interesting test case. And I want to add my voice to the chorus of people recommending this novel. Um, I should also say, Octavia, I do not think that you should read this novel because I think you'll hate it. I mean, I do, I, I'm going to admit that I started it. Um, uh, 
found it immensely yes, boring. Yes, yeah. Well, I'm not at all surprised. Um, but anyway, Stoner was published in 1965 to good reviews. It was not a bestseller. Um, and its author, John Williams, who was an American academic, died without achieving any really hugely significant fame for his writing, um, though he was acknowledged as, as a good novelist and he, he published a few other novels. Um, but Stoner is, you will be surprised to hear this, a novel about ordinary things and people. My favorite. <laughs> the novel's protagonist is one William Stoner, a Midwestern farm boy turned academic who lives a life of modest failures. It is also about the sadness and pain and beauty of life, about small joys and inevitable disappointment. I mean, literally my worst stuff. I loved it. I mean, unsurprisingly, but I loved it. I think it's a beautiful novel and an understated novel and um, a novel about what life is really about. So um, and, and as I mentioned, it's a really interesting story where it was just a word of mouth success in France in many years after it was first published. And other European publishers picked up on it and republished it. Um, and in fact, it was a big European success before it was an American success. That's great. Republication. And also people power, more power to the people. It just it's great to think that readers really can mobilize against the industry when they want. Yes, I agree. And I did also want to give a brief shout out to the Backlisted podcast, our friends Definitely. who it's a fantastic monthly show where they talk to authors about books that they've rediscovered that maybe aren't all that popular and have been backlisted and they have much better recommendations than we do. Yeah, check them out. They're fucking great. I am Carrie Plitt here with Octavia Bright and also with Jennifer Hodgson, who has stuck around to give her book recommendations. So, Octavia, do you want to start? Sure thing, as always. Um, I, I'm basically being a complete book slut at the moment and I'm halfway through a million different things. So this is another recommendation that's coming from the middle of a book, um, but I'm really enjoying it. It's called Outline by Rachel Cusk. Um, and I, I started reading it recently. My favorite way to start reading any book, which is on a sofa somewhere really remote with basically no distractions. <laughs> Um, I was at a friend's place in Cornwall and you could see the sea out the window and there was a fire in the grate and I just put my feet up and got into it. Um, and it's, it's the first in a trilogy. The style is really, really tight, really sharp. Every sentence is, is kind of a very philosophical um, delivery, but the prose manages to be light, which is unusual, you know, and very, very dynamic. Um, it's short. It's not really a conventional narrative. It's it's an exploration of love and loss of love and communication and the way that we talk to each other so it, f it feels quite relevant to what we've been talking about in the show anyway um it's ostensibly about a writer who's in athens for a few days uh hot hot summer she's teaching in a writing course she connects with various people she's divorced um a lot of the conversations she has are about heartbreak um but one of the really interesting things is actually that she does a lot of listening. So um, a huge amount of the novel is in reported speech and it's almost like a series of monologues. So it's very sort of performative feeling. Um, and also, actually, this is an accident, but it's it kind of fits the theme because um, the latest in the trilogy, Kudos, is about to come out in May for the first time published by Faber so they're reissuing Outline and Transit um, which is the second the first and second um, so yeah I, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it I'm pleased with it I mean like, you know like like always it's a bit risky recommending something halfway through because it could end up somewhere awful <laughs> and say something terribly terribly violent and, and dreadful but halfway halfway through Transit um, halfway through Outline sorry Rachel Cusk for the win I would say yeah, yeah. 
Do you know what's funny? Tell me. We're reading that for our next book club. Oh book. my God, you fucking aren't. You are? Can yeah. I cut? No, no one yeah. wants me in their book club, Jennifer. No, I don't know why. You keep saying this and it's not true and it's making me feel bad. Oh no, um, I don't want to be in your book group anyway. Yeah. Uh, okay. Turn no, I'm just, down. I'm only defensive. It's yeah. okay. Maybe one day we'll do it. Um, but yeah, I I can't wait to read it. I've heard so many great things about Cass. Yeah, I think and, I like and it. And yet have never read anything by her yet. Um Jennifer, we would love to hear your Yeah, um, so I've got a book recommendation, but um, I mean, it's a recommendation. I recommend this book wholeheartedly, but I finished reading it at like midnight last night and I've still no idea what I really think of it. So um, yeah, it's um, called Garments Against Women and it's about, um, it's by Anne Boyer. Um, all I know about Anne Boyer really is that she's a poet from Kansas. That's her, that's her biography. And I love a writer that just gives an absolutely plain and understated biography. I came across this writer um, because she was um, retweeted into my timeline. And I thought her, uh, the t- I thought her tweet was beautiful. And uh, I went off and um, looked on her uh, publisher's website. And I read her, her, her biography. And it was the most singular and understated autobiography I'd, I'd ever read. Uh, you know when you like it's it's so unusual with um to read an author autobiography and actually to encourage you to want to read the book right <laughs> yeah. it's a form that doesn't lend itself to dignity anyway um it's wonderful it's sort of um poetic fragments or it's lyrical prose or it's memoir or it's uh, it's essay I don't really know what it is it's called Garments Against Women um. I want to say that it's uh, about how we can live together in a uh, degraded universe that sounds hugely portentous it sort of is about that um it's wonderful it's really special and astonishing you should go and read it i really great. really want to i feel like all <laughs> of my recommendations well. sound really portentous so i wouldn't worry about that <laughs> <laughs> i'm always like it's about life and joy and yeah sadness. do you know what i mean it sounds terrible but yeah. but it's it's the most understated and when you say about books that they're honest that's often a terrible thing to say because you know when we talk about books and we say they're honest we mean something like performative honesty this genuinely is honest in a completely different way and i find it astonishing read it oh, wow <laughs> that sounds fantastic um well, I'm recommending a lot of like white men writing conventional narratives today. I don't know what's up with me, but here I go. Um, so, and this is not even a book, but um, I'd really like to recommend David Grant's story from the February 12th and 19th edition of The New Yorker called A White Darkness, which I read on a flight to Sweden a, a couple of weekends ago. And I, you know, I looked up and we were landing. It was one of the most engrossing things I've read in a long time. Um, it is about the British explorer Henley Worsley um, and his quest to trek across Antarctica alone in 2015. Um, it's very old fashioned in many ways. It's about an old white British dude obsessed with Shackleton wrestling with the extremes of the earth and his own body and mind because he is in the privileged position to do so. Um, but it's also a really, really riveting story of exploration and that probes really deeply into the question of why we as humans continue to do these things in the first place, why we destroy our bodies and our minds and, and what we hope to reach there. Um, David Grant is a wonderful writer. He's a masterful writer. Um, and I suspect that this might be part of something longer given the length of the piece. So I really hope he turns it into a book. Um, and I have heard that his latest book, Killers of the Flower Moon, um, which is about a lot of things, a sort of Native American, a series of murders in a Native American community and the birth of the FBI. A, a bunch of people have recommended it to me. So I'm, I'm going to go out and read that now. Um, so, yes, David Gran, old white dudes. Sometimes they're OK. <laughs> Sometimes they're OK. Sometimes. He sounds good. Yeah, he, he, he yeah, he's all right. 
a resounding <laughs> recommendation. That is all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewees, Nell Dunn and Jennifer Hodgson, Roy Bowens at NTS, and Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on nts.live. You can check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please rate and review us. It helps us reach more listeners and it gives us a real thrill. Yes, a thrill. We'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.